0: I'm Father Mitch Packwell and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we discuss sacred scripture in light of the apostolic tradition. Now, of course, we love having you be part of the program by adding your questions or comments. You can do that during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can, if you live in North America, you can call 1-800-221-9460, 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call 205-271-2980. Now, again, that's country code one. 205-271-2980. 205-271-2980. Now, of course, you can also send questions and comments via email by writing to Tradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we'll come to Consider the resolution of the problem at the wedding feast of Cana and through it, Christ's blessing of marriage. We'll also look at the first steps of the public ministry after St. John the Baptist is arrested. So that's what we're covering now. And we're using my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus launches his public ministry. And of course, you can get that at EWTNRC.com where it is item number 52687, 52687. Now, we are on chapter four, uh, right at the last section of the wedding feast of Cana that chapter four focuses on. Now, this section, this meditation, considers John chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. In those verses it says, Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is the section. Let's take a look at some of the elements of this. First, St. John mentions that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. In the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinic teachings that was collected between 135 B.C. and finally collected in 200 A.D. or so, so uh, by uh, you know, uh, the Judah the prince. And it mentions in the Mishnah that unclean water may be rendered clean by contact with a stone vessel. So if you have unclean water, you can put it in a stone vessel and that is considered a means of purifying it you put it into a pottery vessel, it doesn't count and remains impure. And it's important to note that Jewish custom then and still now uh, requires washing of hands, washing of various vessels um, and ritual uh, clean water in these stone jars would have been necessary. Uh, especially at a large gathering, to have so much. Uh, You see mention of this, for instance, in uh, the Gospel of Mark and also in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 15 is where you find it there. And it discusses the importance of washing and how the Pharisees were very concerned that our Lord's disciples were not following the ritual practice of washing <clears throat> their hands before they ate. So that's why all this is there. And then we see after they, the servants fill the six stone jars to the brim, they render the water ritually clean, according with Jewish tradition. And yet, notice this, the description of the miracle is very restrained, very restrained. They don't mention, St. John makes no mention of whether it's white wine or red wine or rosé or something. There's no mention of the color and nothing about the notes that are found, some, some folks who are very good at wine tasting uh, will say, oh, I get notes of raspberry. Lemon. I never quite understand that. But some people are very sensitive to these things. They're well trained in it. St. John and I were not, you know. so we were, we're in that. All that we see is that our Lord simply tells the servants, TO DRAW SOME WATER OUT AND TAKE IT TO THE CHIEF STEWARD. AND SO THEY DO. THEY OBEY HIS COMMAND. NOW THIS IS IN LINE WITH A NUMBER OF MIRACLES OUR LORD DOES THROUGHOUT THE GOSPELS. WHEN HE TELLS PEOPLE TO GO AND DO SOMETHING AND ALONG THE WAY THEY GET HEALED, LIKE THE LEPERS, THE TEN LEPERS that he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they're going toward uh, the priests, they find out that they're cleansed of their leprosy. But they had to take those steps in faith. So also the, the servants have to do that. And at this point, the chief steward tastes the wine and is amazed because... It, and it really does make sense. If you have some really excellent wine, give that to people first. That'll be their first impression of the wine. And then anything else is, you know, forgot, you know, kind of forgotten because you've already tasted some and maybe had, you know, a bit of the wine. So the wine that you drink later will, won't stand out as well. And that's what he has to go there. But this is something that astounds the chief steward, uh, so much so that he has to go to the bridegroom and say, you know, this is odd. You You don't usually serve the best wine last, but first. So that's something. And with this miracle, we also see, that it concludes by saying that Jesus manifested His glory. The issue of manifesting glory is something very closely allied to a point made earlier about it not being Jesus' hour. During His hour, from John 13 through 21, we see that Jesus glory is manifested and He wants that glory manifested. And this is not about our Lord being egotistical. Don't think that. He wants His glory manifested so that people will be elevated by it. Just the same way that people are elevated and made better people by coming to enjoy beautiful music or great art. You know, that elevates us. And this is also the truth about Jesus manifesting His glory. When you have something that good, it raises you up as an individual. And so in response to that, the glory that He manifested evokes faith from his disciples that, as it says there, his disciples believed in him. The first time they believed in him. So this is a beginning of their own act of faith. Now, it's not going to be their final act of faith by any means. They have a lot to grow in. But it is an initial act of faith. And we'll see as uh, in the Gospels, their faith continues to grow and it has its ups and downs. And then even in Acts of the Apostles, it continues to grow. So also we have to learn that our initial acts of faith are absolutely wonderful, but they're just a start. They get us into the relationship with Christ, but we have to deal with the ups and downs that, that take place. we have to consider that. So this becomes an extremely important uh, miracle uh, that faith uh, about faith. What I'd like you to do is you use this in your meditation, is think about some of these characters and put yourself in their place. For instance, think about the servants. The servants simply obey Jesus. They don't understand why he's doing what he does. They simply obey him. And then, as they obey, they do their part in the miracle. They don't do the miracle. Our Lord Jesus Christ does. But they have a little role to play by simply filling up the water jars, stone jars with water, and taking it to the steward. And think about times you may have been told to do some things you did not really understand, but you were simply told to do what you were told, and play a role that you don't understand, but finish it off. That's worth considering because all of us have various duties, some of which don't always make sense. But in obeying our Lord and in fulfilling our duties, we accomplish some very important things. And think about this issue. Do you thank the Lord God for giving you the grace to obey and do the little part you're supposed to do? God will do the greater part. Our role sometimes is just do something simple. Uh, St. Therese of Lisieux was very good at that. And it's very important to remember that in our own lives. Secondly, I also recommend that you consider the chief steward and the bridegroom and their interaction. Neither the bridegroom nor the steward are at all aware of what happened with the water, where it came from, or what Jesus said to do. They have no clue. They simply speak on the basis of past experience, while the steward does the talking. We don't know what the groom said. But the steward speaks of the wisdom that he has uh, based on his past experience at other banquets and his lack of awareness of Jesus' miracle is precisely what makes him sound kind of ignorant. And he looks kind of foolish as he accuses the bridegroom of not having given the best wine first. But it's really the steward in his lack of knowledge of the origin of this wine that looks kind of foolish. Now, think about times you may have been in those kind of circumstances where you did not really know what the Lord had already been doing in somebody's life, you're unaware. And that you have to come to realize your own lack of faith, your own lack of knowledge of God's activity. And, you know, pay attention to the ways that your lack of knowledge limited you. And sometimes you simply have to be open to what our Lord is doing in somebody's life. Did you come to realize what had happened and realize that you didn't know what was going on as far as God's side? And did that help you to come to greater faith? That would be a very good thing once you realize it. Thirdly, think of yourself in the position of the disciples. Disciples are in the background. It's Our Lady Our Lord's mother, who spoke up to Jesus, not the apostles. They were just in the background. They're just watching Jesus, watching what he's doing. And as they see him act, then they respond with faith. Then they come to realize that they have faith. And the, the very fact that they already had been following Jesus was a sign of some faith, but they were going to grow in more faith. And again, there'll be moments of doubt and incomprehension, just like happens to us. But overall, it would continue to grow through their lives with the exception of Judas. He would be the one who doesn't have just ups and downs. He just goes for the down. Something that you may want to do in your own life in reflecting on this and the apostles here, when did your faith begin? When did you start to have faith? Well, think back on the earliest act of faith they had. In fact, tomorrow... Uh, is going to be the 64th anniversary of my first Holy Communion. And making my first Communion was very tied in to growing in faith for the first time. Not that I didn't believe in God or anything, but I just didn't know much. But I came to make a decision to invite Jesus into my heart. So that would be very much one of my earliest acts of faith. And picture yourself in that scene. And imagine our Lord standing there, because he was. Ask yourself, what first attracted you to Jesus? And then think about the other times that you grew in faith, the times that you developed your faith, and talk to him about those moments of growing in faith. And then, something else that we ought to consider IS THAT THE PEACE AND SATISFACTION OF FAITH THAT YOU HAVE IN CHILDHOOD GETS CHALLENGED. ADOLESCENCE AND NEW PROBLEMS THAT COME WITH THAT. AND AS YOUNG ADULTS, THESE ARE CHALLENGES TO OUR FAITH. WE HAVE NEW QUESTIONS. THAT'S NOT BAD. BUT WE HAVE TO LEARN HOW TO ANSWER THOSE. AND WE HAVE TO WORK THROUGH THEM IN FAITH. AND IT HELPS US TO COME TO NEW LEVELS OF FAITH. SAME AS ADULTS. As we raise families, our faith is going to include a sense of providence for the family, taking care of children, dealing with sickness, dealing with sometimes death of a spouse, all this. And then in middle age, we start to evaluate our lives. You know, when we get closer to the mid-40s and 50s, we're about halfway through adulthood, and it's a good idea to look back and evaluate what you've done as an adult. And if you're on the right track uh, and as you deal with, with the decisions you have to make for the last part of your working period in adulthood. And then certainly as you get older and you deal with infirmity, retirement, uh sometimes the losses of loved ones like spouses and others. We also have to deal with the inevitability of our own death and come to a new level of understanding of our faith in light of that. And through all these stages, realize that like the apostles, we have to keep growing in newer and deeper kinds of faith. And what I would urge you to do is consider how this is uh, a grace to keep growing in faith and just to ask our Lord to help you to grow with it and maybe conclude your prayer with uh, a Hail Mary and an our Father so that your faith may grow even more deeply. All right, here's what we'll do then. We'll stop and uh, take a break and come back and take a look at how our Lord began His public ministry and His public preaching. So stay with us. Welcome back. Now, we just finished up uh, looking at the wedding feast of Cana. And Cana is situated just a few miles north of Nazareth. And something that we then see is that our Lord is going to go from Nazareth, which is pretty much in the middle. OF THE WHOLE GALILEE AREA. AND HE'S GOING TO GO EAST TOWARD THE SEA OF GALILEE. AND ST. JOHN DOESN'T MENTION THAT, uh, BUT HE DOES, BUT ST. MATTHEW CERTAINLY DOES. SO WE'LL GO BACK TO THE GOSPEL OF ST. MATTHEW, CHAPTER 4, VERSES 12 TO 16. It says in Matthew 4, verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territories Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So, first of all, we see that Herod Antipas arrested John the Baptist. Herod Antipas was one of the sons, one of a number of sons by Herod the Great, who were named Herod. So Herod liked his name so well that he named a number of his sons uh, Herod. And they named some of their sons Herod. Um, and with the arrest of John the Baptist, which is recorded, by the way, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 and 14, verse 3 to 4, It's also mentioned in Mark 1.14 and 6.17 and in Luke 3.20. And the same message is true in each of these Gospels. St. John doesn't mention this so much, um, but uh, the other three do. And this is a way to show that the ministry of John the Baptist is over and the ministry of the Messiah now began. So this is why there's a start. Now, the arrest of John the Baptist is known not only from the New Testament, but also from the Jewish historian, Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Josephus wrote that Herod had imprisoned John in a desert fort called Makawar, Makawar. And uh, uh, I think in Greek they call it Machairus, but today in Jor- Jordan, uh, you can still go there, by the way. Yeah, it's still there. And you can go and see where most likely the prison cell was and where the royal court would have been. Um, why did he take them all the way into that desert region east of the Sea of Galilee? Excuse me, east of the Dead Sea. It's straight east of the Dead Sea, um, because that way the crowds would not be close, and nobody could try to set John the Baptist free. Uh, you couldn't get enough of a crowd out there because nobody lives there. It's really, really deserted and barren. So, uh, and it's also quite defensible place. It's a fort that uh, Herod had built. A lot of forts, so. That's why Herod the Great had built them. Herod Antipas was using it. And we see that our Lord, well, Herod Antipas put John to the southeast in the desert, Jesus goes straight north to Galilee, not to run away from Herod Antipas, but in order to embrace his mission. And in the context of embracing his mission, you know, St. Uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2, where it says, uh, "...there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the way, land beyond Jordan." Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, when you still, uh, if you take the road that goes north from uh, Nazareth to Cana, and then when you get to Cana, you take a turn to the east, it'd be a right turn. And you go along this road that takes you right to uh, the the Sea of Galilee and the, the city of Tiberias. And that road goes right through two valleys, one of which is the Valley of Naphtali, great place for growing grain, and the second is the Valley of Zebulun, also a wonderful place for growing grain. You also pass by the Horns of Hattin where the Crusaders lost their decisive battle to Saladin in the Crusade period. And when Isaiah spoke that prophecy, it was because the Assyrians had invaded northern Israel back in 734 to 732. That was the darkness that was there. And then much later, A group of Iturians who were Gentiles also came into the Galilee. And they were forced by the Jewish king, uh, Judah Aristobulus, in 104, to become Jewish. And these Iturians had been pagans, but to stay in the land, they either were going to stay in the land, and become Jewish, or they had to leave. But because they were forced to become Jewish, other Jews kind of looked down on them. I mean, you see that later on uh, when uh, our Lord is at the high priest's house and they say he's a Galilean and things like that. So that's part of it. And there were also the darkness that came from the Roman oppressors living there, the capital of the Roman province was Sepphoris. And that was just about a mile and a half away from Nazareth. So, you know, he'd be going through that whole region. Also, these, the the, uh, Israelites who used to live there were part of the 10 lost tribes. So when we think about the quotation of this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, And this darkness in Galilee that persisted for generations uh, in different epochs, whether during the time of the Assyrians or the Iturians uh, intruding there or the Romans, all this is seen as darkness and the shadow of death. And think about that. IN TERMS OF MANY OTHER PERIODS IN HISTORY. you know, A LOT OF TIMES PEOPLE uh, DON'T LIKE TO APPLY THIS TO THEMSELVES BECAUSE, ESPECIALLY IN THE MODERN WORLD, WE HAVE AN IDEA THAT WE ARE MODERN. WE HAVE SCIENCE. WE HAVE REASON. AND WE'RE WAY BEYOND, YOU KNOW, IGNORANCE AND SUPERSTITION AND BARBARITY. BUT I ASK YOU TO TAKE A LOOK AGAIN at the modern world, and see that there are shadows of death that come upon us, think about how nations rejected God and put nationalism ahead of God. That's what caused World War I. People put racism ahead of God and made race their God. That was Hitler and the empire of Japan. Other times we see that people take ideas like communism and they try to make that their ideal. And the death that was done at the hands of Stalin was six times as much as what Hitler did. Hitler executed 10 million people. Stalin, 61.9. Hitler killed 10 million, but Mao Zedong, about 90 million people. This is a horrendous kind of thing. And that's why in the 20th century, secular governments, and especially atheistic governments, had killed 304 million people in war and in genocide. So the darkness remains. And many of you saw the news of people so rabidly committed to dismembering babies in the wombs of their mothers that they were at churches Protesting. I saw one sign when Senator Schumer, Schumer was objecting to the Supreme Court overthrowing uh, Roe versus Wade, and it said their abortion is a Catholic view. No, it's not. It's a mortal sin, one of the sins that cries out to heaven. And the barbarity of killing in the womb, and then the barbarity of saying, as I saw in another sign, abortion is a gift from God. The God of this world, who's Satan, but not the God who made the world. These folks are rabid, and we see this darkness. Pay attention to the darkness that exists in our world. Pay attention to where you see this, where it worries you the most. And... I ask you to picture Jesus walking into these situations of darkness as the new light of the world. He still has to enter the areas of darkness that try to turn mothers against their own children. These are areas of darkness. Picture our Lord walking into abortion clinics. And that he loves the babies in the womb. He loves the mothers that are under such stress that they're willing to abort their children. And he loves the medical staff and sometimes non-medical staff who are at the uh, abortion clinic trying to kill those children and push towards it. See our Lord enter these areas of darkness, the darkness that exists in Ukraine and the darkness in many other places, in our cities. And ask our Lord, what would He say to you about the darkness and how you are to respond in love to the darkness? What would He want to say to the world? about the darkness that exists in His light. Ask our Lord that and speak to Him as He, because He still wants to come into our darkness as much as He did into the darkness of the terrible situations uh, of His own day. Okay? All right. Let's stop there and... Let's take a question from YouTube. We have one from Yaroslav. Uh, he asks this question If we reject a vocation to marriage due to circumstances, does Jesus bless the other vocation? Yes. Here's something that is very, very important, Yaroslav. You know, when our Lord calls us to a vocation. We have free choice. If you know, I had felt called to the priesthood, but I said, no, I don't want to give up having a wife and children. I want to follow that instead. The church makes it clear that would not be a sin. It may make your life a little bit more difficult. And if I had done that, had, had I chosen instead to be married and have children, I'm sure I would have made my future wife's life more difficult. God has saved some poor woman from having to put up with me. But I would have still been still would have been blessed. It would have been holy matrimony. The sacrament would be valid and blessed by God. So that would be very much the case. The Lord gives us freedom. It's not a sin to say, I don't want to follow that vocation I think I had. It's not a sin. We have that free choice. If you commit sin that breaks God's commandments, that's another issue. But not accepting a vocation is not a, a sin. And this is something that sometimes we have to uh, you know consider. Um and the the only reason our Lord calls us to one vocation rather than another is because it's ultimately going to be for our own good. Okay? All right, we're gonna take a little break. will be back in a few minutes, so please stay with us. Mm-hmm. first of all I want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 pm for EWTN live. We'll be talking with Father, Father Gerald Murray from the great city of New York about the storm of doctrinal confusion and worldliness inside the church and how we can calmly navigate through these crises having confidence in God, and God's unfailing providence. That'll be a very important thing. And then I also want to mention something. Um, I received, uh, I went to be the commencement speaker over at Ave Maria University. They gave me this doctoral hood and uh, an honorary doctorate with that, which is very typical of universities. And I mentioned it partly because I was just so impressed. With the students, they, uh, they, the, the graduates and also the undergrads and various grad students that I met uh, who were still studying in the faculty, um, it, it was so delightful to be in a place where Catholicism was just part of the norm. They, you know, they're sinners like everybody else, uh, but they're really, really uh, thinking hard and thinking well, and living their faith with great devotion. It was really uh, quite exceptional. So I want to thank Ave Maria University for uh, allowing me to come speak at their commencement and giving a doctorate, but also for the privilege of meeting the great people there. It It was quite terrific. All right, so let's go first of all to a caller. We have Gloria on the line. Gloria, where are you calling from? Balakim with Pennsylvania. Wonderful. And what is your question?
1: Father, I want to know why we call our priests Father when Mm -hmm. in St. Matthew's Gospel, I think it's chapter 23, it says, Mm -hmm. Call no man Father.
0: Right, right. Okay. Are you also aware that in a number of the epistles, The apostles call certain men father. Are you aware of that, Gloria? No, I'm not. Yes. Um, Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where St. Paul Paul says, You have 10,000 teachers. Actually, he says a myriad, but that's 10,000. You have 10,000 teachers but only one father, it is I who became your father by my preaching of the gospel. Are you aware of that passage?
1: No, i have to look at that.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then in chapter um, uh, 2 of the first epistle of St. John, he addresses three groups in the church. He calls one group young men, another little children, and another fathers. So there's a group of people he addresses as fathers, others as young men, and others as little children. Twice he does that in that chapter. Now, why? what's the difference? The apostles identify themselves as in St. Paul. He insists on being called father. And St. John calls a group of people in his community fathers. So why is that when Jesus said, call no man father? Gloria, the issue is partly cultural and theological. In Judaism, there were a number of schools and sects. Now, they didn't use the word sect. They would instead use the word house. So, for instance, the two dominant uh, rabbis at the time of our Lord growing up were the rabbi Hillel and the rabbi Shammai, and they didn't call them schools. They would say, Beit Hillel, that is the house of Hillel, and Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai. They called those schools or sets houses. The leader of that house was the father of the house, so Hillel was the father of the house of Hillel, and Shammai, the house, the, the head of the house of Shammai. And what our Lord is warning about in when He's in the Holy Land, you know, in Jerusalem, saying, you know, beware of the Pharisees. He's specifically addressing problems with the Pharisees. And he says, call no man father because he had already taught them in Matthew 16 that he is going to build his church on the rock who is Peter. And what he does not want is for people to start different sects. That's what he's warning against and do something like have the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai that were were divided from each other within the Pharisee movement. That's what he's warning of there. But St. Paul was writing to the Corinthians who were Gentiles and they didn't have that background. So when he insists on being their father. He's insisting that by his preaching of the word, he has brought them to birth in Christ. He has generated them in Christ. And just just like a father who gives the seed so that a child can be conceived, so also by analogy, St. Paul gave the seed of God's Word. Our Lord and the Apostles often speak about this the Word of God as being like a seed that germinates inside of us. And they put that seed into the hearts of people and brought them in as their spiritual children. That's why St. Paul insists on being called Father. And also St. John writing to Christians in Ephesus also calls a group their fathers because they're not trying to start another sect, but they are simply trying to uh, deal with, uh, you know, their spiritual leadership. Okay. All right. So now we have uh, another call. Hope that's that's helpful to you. Um, by the way, some of those insights came Uh, I learned from a Lutheran pastor who studied that very topic and wrote that in her master's thesis. All right, we have a question now from Hope. Hope, where are you calling from?
1: From Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: Wonderful. And what is your question?
1: Well, I have a question regarding the Eucharist. Okay. Um, I'm a convert. I went through RCIA several decades mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, pastor that, uh, or the priest that, that uh, taught the classes, um, was he really did emphasize the importance of the Eucharist, and he mm-hmm. spoke about both the host and the receiving of the chalice, and it was offered at every mass. Um, some people would take the host and not the chalice, but it was mm-hmm. offered to anyone who wanted to receive. And then I've moved several times since then, and I've been in different parishes that um, do the same thing. They, they sure. offer the chalice as well as the host. But um, mm-hmm. uh, several years ago, I started attending um, a church, and they don't offer the chalice at all to anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. and um, only the priest. And I spoke to the priest about it, and he his answer to me was basically it was inconvenient to try to offer the chalice to everyone, mm-hmm. um, although there was another priest uh, that also was there, and he used intinction, where right. he would pick up the host and dip it in the chalice right. and then put it on our tongue right. and say, body and blood of Christ. But when they put the host on your tongue, they just say the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a few years ago when I was asking the priest, he says, "Well, the body, blood, soul, and divinity is in the host." But we were not. I was never taught that in the RCIA yes. class that I went through. So right. I'm just a little bit confused about. Right. Um, it was so emphasized uh, back during my formative years as a new Catholic, mm-hmm. and then now as. An elderly Catholic, um, I I get a little frustrated that it isn't even offered anymore.
0: Well, and quite frankly, um, it may be a good while before people will be able to, uh, maybe even years, before uh, the, the the precious blood is offered to people from the chalice because of the 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 COVID. So, this is uh, very important. You have to keep in mind that even if you got the tiniest fragment, I, I'll never forget meeting a Jesuit priest uh, who had been a prisoner in China. And his mother smuggled hosts and wine into him. She put it in a host in between Neko candy and sent it to him. And he was able to offer Mass and he would break it into tiny fragments so that he could give a tiny fragment to each priest. But he could only give them the host, of course. And he would use the cap of a medicine bottle for his chalice. That's all he had. And I'm sure that our Lord considered that very precious, given the suffering. But you still received... The whole of Christ, even with the tiniest fragment of either the body of Christ or His precious blood, and you don't get any less of Christ by receiving only one species or even the tiniest fragment of it. So that's very important. Uh, not to be nervous about that. I, at my parish, we do ma- uh, the Eucharist. We, we distribute Eucharist by intinction. Um, uh, because it's Eastern Rite and we do that. But that would be something um, that more parishes may consider. But the, going back to receiving from the chalice together, that's probably not going to happen for a long time. That's why they stopped in the first place. It's because of the plague. You know, so that's what we got. All right, I have one more caller. Nick, where are you calling from? Hi, Father. I'm calling uh, from Lebanon, New Jersey. How are you today? I'm well. What can we do for, I have just about a minute left. Okay, what are your thoughts about the series, The Chosen? Are we allowed to watch it as
1: Catholics? And what do you think about the fortune of St. Matthew?
0: Yeah, um, here's here's what I say. Yeah, it's got a lot of good things in it. Now, you also have to keep in mind it is not using uh, some of Catholic theology and there'd be a few, uh, a couple episodes, especially the one on the nativity that is not quite uh, Catholic doctrine at all. Um, It would be fairly standard evangelical uh, Protestant understanding of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But... Most of these are very good. So, if you have a good sense of your own Catholic faith, you could watch it and say, oh, okay, they've gone, you know, I see where they've gone to their own doctrine on this and say more than the text warrants. But there is much good, mostly good, the vast majority of it is quite good. And I hope, in fact, that we may even show. Many of those episodes here on EWTN. I want to interview uh, the folks from that, uh, but there was a problem doing that before. We'll get to, to them eventually. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's very good. Very good. Just keeping on a couple points here and there. Sometimes you'd have Catholic theologians even worse on some of those same points. All right, <laughs> let's uh, pray and ask Our Lady of Fatima to bless the people of Russia and Ukraine so that they might turn to her and through her turn to Jesus Christ and find peace in their hearts. And may the Lord bless all of you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And please keep us between the gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you.